Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is The Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. For this episode, B and I, and we're thinking it might go over two episodes, but we're just winging it because we'll see how long it takes. If it's a really- Look at you. Look at, look at how you have grown and changed. You just said you're going to wing it on the podcast. Well, no, I've got, a, I've got an outline, but I don't know how long... <laughs> I'm celebrating that as progress and growth. I love it. As soon as I highlighted it, you're like, no, 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 I've got a plan. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. What I'm saying is, is, you know, we always get ideas as we talk and maybe we'll end up talking for two hours instead of one hour. So So what you're saying, Mel, is we've got a map. We've got a podcast map. It's not a plan, but we have it for all the avenues that it may take us. Correct. So I'm open to kind of the flow of this episode. Just don't know how this is going to go and I won't know. I trust it. I trust that it will be what it needs to be. So stay stay tuned, listeners. You may be here with us next week talking about this. You may not. Unknown. Let's trust the unknown. Well, and if I know us, I, I my, my guess is that this is going to be a two-part thing because we're just going to keep talking for two hours and this is so this is episode 37b and that means that we're full term the podcast is term oh that's nice it's lo- it's gone longer than either of our first pregnancies went <laughs> yeah, podcasting for longer than our first pregnancies Oh, that's really special. Wow. Wow. Pregnancy is a really long time. <laughs> I know. 37 weeks at a minimum. Um, and we're recording this on International Midwives Day. So that's, wow, that's really significant. <laughs> milestones today. We, yeah, it's International Day of the Midwife. You'll be hearing this a few weeks after International Day of the Midwife. We are full term as a podcast. And we've been podcasting officially now longer than our first pregnancy. So congratulations, B. And and what else? What other stats have and, we got? And congratulations to you. Oh, something like because you're doing all the work, I just rock up. Ten thousand downloads a week. We get this podcast gets over ten thousand downloads a week. Yes. So that's exciting. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for being here. We adore you. We're really, yeah, really, really just. So thanks. And thanks for the kindness. So today we're talking about cesarean section, but not in the way you think, obviously, like every single episode, we're doing it, but not (laughs) in the way you think. We want to talk about cesarean section, but just ways to make it positive. And so we, I guess this is us doing our part to try and help women who do have to have a cesarean section have a more positive experience. Anyway, so that's why we wanted to do it. And you know, in Australia, the current stats on cesarean sections, if we look at the Australian Mothers and Babies Report, which was released last year, but it's on the two th- up to 2020 stats, 37% of women were having their babies by cesarean section. 
And what we know, the World Health Organization talks about this 10% number. And the 10% is not sort of how many should have cesarean sections. It's once cesarean section rates are over 10%, there's no associated reductions in maternal and newborn mortality rates. So basically any country with a cesarean section rate below 10% experiences higher maternal and neonatal mortality rates. and Which is death rates for those that don't know, so death rates. And that doesn't plateau until the cesarean section rate reaches about 10%. So that's where they kind of got that theory from. So basically any cesarean section rate over 10% is not going to make an impact on how many women or babies die in birth. So ours in Australia is currently 37%, which is not dissimilar from other Western developed countries. So it's a big issue, you know, quite possibly one in three women uh, listening to this podcast will have had a cesarean section, or you might be in a position where you need to consider one. So we're going to talk also about really good reasons for cesarean section and also the definitions and we'll just let's let it unfold. We've got a map. We're going we're gonna to start the journey. I do want to say here when you and I think everyone needs to listen to this podcast who is pregnant because you really want to map for all the things you don't actually want to happen because that when you map for them, what you're doing is you're making decisions that will hopefully keep you safe emotionally during that time. And so hopefully those people, I mean, the people that need to listen to it aren't obviously going to listen to it because that's who I'm speaking to. But the other thing that is really important is to ask for the statistics from your care provider or place of birth that you're choosing what their cesarean section rate is. Because yes, whilst the Australian rate is 37%, some places and some practitioners may have like an 80 or 90% cesarean rate. And I think that comes back to what we talked about in the first couple of episodes around choosing a care provider in a place of birth that aligns with your philosophy. So if you really don't want an unplanned cesarean and you are choosing a care provider with an 80% cesarean rate, then maybe your care provider and your philosophies aren't aligned. So I do think that's super important. Good point because, yeah, although it's 37%, like if we look at the stats, you are far less likely to have a cesarean section in a public hospital than you are in a private hospital with a private obstetrician. So, yeah, the rates do vary. And, yeah, please go back and listen to that. It was episode two, I think, the medicalization spectrum. Yeah. All right, should we get started? Let's talk about positive cesarean sections. And before we get into the nitty-gritty, I want to just quickly talk about this elective versus emergency cesarean section label. So in in medicine, there's only two categories for cesarean sections, and this is all about data collection. And so there's two options. You can either have an elective cesarean section or an emergency cesarean section. There is unfortunately no in-between category. So an elective is one that is planned at a time that's convenient for the woman and all the care providers. So everyone's agreed, yes, we're having a cesarean section and let's put it in the diary. So that's what we would call an elective cesarean section. It's still, and this is the issue with this word, 
it, it is still often not something that the person wants to elect. So sometimes it is for sure, but there's no option for that to be wanted cesarean versus unwanted plan or wanted plan cesarean or unwanted plan cesarean. And you could have been coerced into electing cesarean section. So these terms can be triggering for people because they're like, well, I had a cesarean section you know, by an appointment or cesarean by appointment, but it wasn't what I wanted and I felt coerced into it. And, you know, so yes. Yeah, this it's the words don't actually summarize the feelings or the thought processes. And that's why it can be so triggering for people, which again says, you know, if anything's triggering, it means there's feelings that are sitting there that still haven't been processed. And this is where debriefing is super important. Yeah. And so this is, yeah, why I'm mentioning it is that some people will say, well, yeah, it was elective, but I didn't really want it. Yeah. That, you know, if you have a look at your paperwork and your documents and things, the person caring for you will have written elective or emergency. And the emergency one, the emergency classification is again, really upsetting to women because, you know, if you, let's say, you went you went into labor and you were laboring and you arrive at hospital and they go, oh, actually, now that you're here, we've noticed that your baby's breech. And then you go in for a cesarean section, that's classified as an emergency cesarean section, even though no one was actually in danger and no, and it wasn't an emergency circumstance, it would still be written in your notes as emergency cesarean section. Same as if you were having, if you were in labor and for whatever reason your labor didn't progress as fast as your care provider thought. And then they recommended cesarean section as the next option, but no one was actually in any danger. It would still be written on your notes as an emergency. And people will often say, I got told I had an emergency cesarean, but my baby was fine. It came out crying and it was well and then there can be you know I was told it was an emergency but was it there can be a lot of grief and questioning around the language because it what is what you're told has happened isn't what it instinctually felt like or what it looked like you know if a baby comes out crying and well then there's that whole well was that actually needed then and there and this is all just systematic terminology so that everybody in the system knows what happened this is not, this terminology is not designed to inform the women of their circumstance. It's designed to classify things in the system for hospital staff, for statisticians, so that they can keep track of what they've been doing. But the language doesn't serve women, that's for sure. Yeah, that's the language. And so it would be great for us to change it in people's notes. And I think I, I've worked with amazing midwives and doctors who do this and add when they can, because a lot of the notes that you get, like the discharge summaries that you will get are just from a system. And so they're very limited in the words that can be used. And sometimes there's an ability to add in notes. And so I just want to offer that if you're not currently doing that in your practice. So I, I get it and I and we get that it's triggering. So we just want to acknowledge it, but also maybe highlight that our practice, little changes that we can make in our practice can make a huge difference to people. And even saying to a woman when you give her her discharge papers, like, hey, this says emergency, but that's because there's a drop-down menu and I only have the option to put elective or emergency. I can't put in there anything else. And so, you know, I'm sorry that says that, but, you know, yeah, know that your baby was well and you were well at the time and, you know, we can we can still talk women around and that's what they'll remember rather than, 
you know, or the next time they look at their notes, like, oh, yeah, I remember the midwife told me that that's just part of their computer program anyway. So, yeah, so those are the two classifications. So if you look at your notes and you think, no, it wasn't an emergency, but it's written that way because of that reason. So, and a lot of people who are, you know, really keen for a vaginal birth and, you know, midwives who are completely physiological, you know, sometimes we can look at cesarean section as a really negative thing because we know they're overused. We know a lot of women are given them unnecessarily. But we thought we'd go through a little bit of a list of really good reasons for a cesarean section. So these are reasons that if you didn't have a cesarean section, there's a very, very good chance that you or your baby would be far worse off having had a vaginal birth than a cesarean section. So there are some really, really good reasons. There are times where cesarean sections do save lives. And what the World Health Organization says is that's about 10% of the time. And any more after that, we're not really going to change the stats on maternal and neonatal mortality or deaths. So the first one I want to talk about that's a really, really good reason is a condition called placenta previa. And this is where the placenta implants low in your uterus and there are various grades, but basically any placenta previa where your placenta is placed over the cervix. So that means it's actually implanted in the very lower part of your uterus and over the opening of your cervix. That's a placenta previa and it's all different grades. But with placenta previa, if you labor, your placenta actually starts to detach from the tissues that have been feeding it with blood and you can bleed. The baby can have blood loss from the placenta and the outcomes are poor for the baby. And so there, are, if your placenta is positioned over your cervix and hasn't moved out of the way, not that they don't move, but if you have a follow-up ultrasound and it still persists to be over your cervix, then the very best outcome you're going to get is with the cesarean section. Clinicians will tell you low-lying placenta means you have to have a cesarean section, and that's not true. So anything more than 1.5 centimetres from your cervix, and if the baby's head has descended into the pelvis, you can still birth your baby vaginally if you've got low-lying placenta. It just depends on the clinician. So if your clinician's comfortable with that and experienced, then they'll be a lot more comfortable. So yeah, that's the first reason for why you might have, and this would be an elective cesarean section. Often with placenta previous, you'll get bleeds through your pregnancy. And the idea is to try and get your pregnancy as far along as possible before having a cesarean section, because like, you basically want to prevent a serious bleed. And sometimes they can happen through the pregnancy, but they become more common towards the end as your cervix starts to change. So the other really good reason for a cesarean section is if you have what's called a placental abruption. So this is where your placenta actually starts to come away from the side of your uterus. And this is absolutely an emergency. And if it happens in early labor and you're not fully dilated, then a cesarean section would absolutely be life-saving for your baby if it was severe placental abruption. So there's, again, different grades. It could be mild. It could be more severe. Sometimes if this is happening and you're fully dilated and you're pushing and, you know, there's actually a clear end and the baby's doing okay, you might be able to have a vaginal birth. But 
in things like, for example, if women aren't actually laboring and they start experiencing bleeding and we discover it's placental abruption, then it's an immediate emergency cesarean section for things like that. The other one is uterine abruption. So different to placental abruption where the placenta comes off the wall. Uterine abruption is where any kind of scar on the uterus can actually start to come apart during labor. This can sometimes happen during pregnancy too. You can have a uterine abruption during pregnancy. And so uterine abruptions are usually related to some kind of scar on the uterus. So it could be if you've had investigations done on your uterus in the past, past where you've had laparoscopic surgeries or fibroid surgeries or a cesarean section in the past and you've got a scar, then you are at risk of uterine abruption. And again, we're not going to go into the stats of all this. This is kind of just a very broad straight sweep. And B and I acknowledge that we're very broad sweeping in this and a lot of episodes. We've got about 45 minutes to an hour to give you as much information as we possibly can. So if you want more info, this is why we've got the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives. It's not quite open yet. It will be likely open by the end of July. But in there is the opportunity to go much, much deeper into all of these episodes. So if you've got questions or you want to know more or you want, you know, you think they didn't cover that enough, we probably won't cover everything enough. But that's why we've got this extra platform of the assembly is that that's the place we can do that. So, yeah, that's my disclaimer for today because we are broad sweeping over everything. So, yeah, uterine abruption, if you've got a serious one, then cesarean section is life-saving. They can be milder ones, which either might not be picked up or can lead to a normal vaginal birth and potential repair later. But that can be a good reason for cesarean section. Another good reason is if the mother is actually unwell and has some kind of condition like a severe heart condition. Sometimes women with heart conditions, I guess the concern is that their condition won't allow them to deal with the how rigorous labor could be. And so sometimes these women are offered cesarean sections. And so that would be a very personal situation to what, what's happening for you. The other one is genuine fetal decline. So genuine concern for the baby's well-being where the heart rate is unusual, there's signs that the baby's really not doing well, then potentially that would be a time to have a cesarean section. Another good reason is maternal request. And this is this is a big can of worms, but if a woman requests a cesarean section, there's usually a good reason, there's usually a, a reason, and I will discuss later why women choose elective cesarean sections, but forcing a woman to have a physiological or vaginal birth in a circumstance where she actually really wants a cesarean section, I think is equivalent to forcing a woman who wants a vaginal birth to have a cesarean section. So I think we need to be really aware that some women for either physical, emotional, psychological or medical reasons feel much better having ha- ha- uh, choosing a cesarean section. So that's a good reason. And this is where your care provider bias really comes into it. Um, is that you don't always get to be the midwife you want to be in every situation you have to be the midwife that the person requires you to be. And so, you know, and that I think that is what makes an extraordinary midwife is someone who can adapt and put their needs out. Many midwives come into birth because they want all the incredible hormones and they want, you know, they come into midwifery because they love the physiology of 
vaginal birth and physiological, or they love physiological birth. But the fact is the safest and often the most empowering birth for some people is cesarean section. And so as a care provider, it really takes you to look at, well, how are you providing care and and what are you doing here? Who, what, what are you prioritizing? Because if we're prioritizing the person that we're caring for, then our bias won't come into it. But that is tricky. It is tricky because we're human beings with feelings and thoughts and emotions. But yeah, it is. I think what you just said there was so powerful because it's true. It's it's about the person and their choices. There's no right or wrong way to birth. There's just what is right and what feels good for you. And what actually feels good is being supported in the choices you made. Our job is just to inform women of their options, the risks and benefits of each. And then if a woman chooses something that you think is either risky or not the right choice, that's where it's not our job to decide what the right choice is or what it's or what is too risky to consider. That's the woman's choice. So we just present the information. So, you know, yeah, women who choose cesarean sections they at least should be told by their care provider, look, you can choose this. You've just got to be aware that you are at increased risk of some particular complications that you wouldn't be at risk at if you had a vaginal birth. But for some women, those physical risks, so risk of infection or whatever, less concerning than the potential emotional impact of having a vaginal birth over a cesarean birth. So it's not up to us to balance the risk and decide what's too risky to that, you know, risk and safety is is a subjective thing that is isolated to the woman's experience, not ours. So, yeah. So that's a reason. So the, the next reason, there can be things like uh, there are infections that can exist like an active case of genital herpes. So if you, you know, we screen women when you're pregnant, like do you ever get genital herpes? And if it's not active, if you do have herpes, genital herpes and it's not active it's totally fine but if you have an active outbreak of genital herpes while you're about to give birth it's incredibly dangerous to the baby to get that infection at the time of birth and so if you do have an active genital herpes the time of labor they will recommend cesarean section for you over actually giving birth to the baby vaginally and that could be life-saving but again can't talk about the exact stats here. Assembly of Rebellious Midwives is where all that information is, but broad strokes. The final possible good reason for cesarean section, and we talked about this in the big babies, small babies episode, is something called cephalopelvic disproportion, where the baby's head is legitimately too big to traverse the woman's pelvis for whatever reason, either positionally or for size or some kind of deformity in the woman's pelvis. And this can be actually more uh, common in developing countries where potentially there's malnutrition, where girls are married off early in their lives, in their teens, and they're having babies. Yeah, so the pelvis hasn't had a chance to fully form or form well because there hasn't been adequate nutrition. Correct. So this is where in developing countries we see things like labours are lasting four or five days and then the baby dies and then the woman ends up with fistulas and all kinds of prolapses and trauma. It's because of genuine cephalopelvic disproportion. So we don't see it as much in well-nourished, you know, in countries where people are well-nourished. So cephalopelvic disproportion is only genuine if the baby absolutely is not going to come out. And there are signs of this 
like fetal like distress of the baby the baby doesn't engage in the pelvis the labor goes on for a long long time sometimes the baby can have meconium stain lycor blood stained urine in the woman woman yeah yeah fever fever in the woman so we typically see that the body is trying really hard the baby is trying really hard and they're stuck and what is happening there is that there has been an, an obstruction in that particular labor with you and your child that that may not happen again it's not something that we can screen for it's not something that we can screen for and i do want to say typically what I have seen is that some labors will be obstructed, but it doesn't mean all your labors will be obstructed, in which case that's not true CPD. Yeah. And I don't think it's very common, honestly, true CPD. No, but people get told it so often. So often I hear people saying, oh, they told me this baby was never going to come out. And that may be true. That baby may have never come out in that situation. It doesn't mean other babies that you may carry may may not. And the biggest reason for cesarean section in this country is previous cesarean section. That is the biggest reason given. And so there is so much that we do now to prevent the first cesarean because we know that that then increases future cesarean sections for people. And so often what I see is with people making decisions to have a cesarean based on what they've been told about their body or their capability, that is probably not true. I think a lot of elective cesareans second time are chosen around misinformation. Be really careful with the comments that we say in birth because people are so vulnerable and we take them with us. Yeah. You know, we don't we may not remember who sent them to us or what their name was, but we remember the comment. And that can really put people on different trajectories and that will really influence their future birth decisions and and their confidence levels around themselves, not just in birth, but in motherhood and parenting. Mm. Yeah. And so the last really good reason I've written down is very occasionally, I mean, it depends again on your clinician, but in births with multiple babies, sometimes a cesarean section is indicated. This is, I feel like the birth of multiples is similar to the discussion that we will have had about breech births where, you know, it's very possible that twins and potentially triplets could be born vaginally but so many are born by cesarean section. Not every pregnancy with multiple babies needs to be by cesarean section, but some might really benefit from it. Again, that's a whole different podcast. We're going to do multiples at some stage. The other thing that can be here is it can be on your birth map that you would choose a cesarean over specific types of births. So for me, I wouldn't, and this is a personal thing, I would never have forceps. And so in theatre, if, I, if my birth looked like going to theatre for what they call a trial of forceps, my choice there would be, please give me a cesarean section. And so that can be part of the map of I'm willing to have this, I'm not willing to have that. And so, you know, when you are birth mapping, you can say, when would I be willing to have a cesarean section? And I know I've chucked in my opinion there, but and normally this is evidence-based and professional, but that is my opinion is very much based on evidence of what forceps do to 
our sacred pelvic space and it really blows me away that we still use that all the work I do in core and pelvic floor health now and again it's still a choice some people will much prefer a forceps birth over a cesarean but this is where your birth mapping is really important when would you be willing to have a forceps when would you be willing to have a cesarean and I do want to mention that forceps are often used in cesarean people don't know this forceps especially in an emergency cesarean where the baby may be much more engaged in your pelvis, forceps are often used to help the baby come out in a cesarean. Obviously, it's much different than a forceps birth because they're helping to lift the baby out as opposed to pulling the baby out. But some babies will come up out with forceps marks on their face with a cesarean birth and people can be like, what's that? What was that for? So I think it's a really important thing that gets highlighted. But yeah, yeah, that that would be my only other reason some people would say. And so basically, if it feels right for you. Yeah. And yeah, and I'm reminded of another client a long time ago who had a previous traumatic induction and she had a condition that did require her to have her babies early both times. And the first time they offered her an induction and the second time she said, I'll have my waters broken in order to be induced. But if I don't go into labor after 24 hours, I'd like a cesarean section because the the induction was very traumatic and that was the root of her trauma. And so, yeah, like, a, you know, she made a very informed decision based on her previous experiences. She knew that this was what she needed for her particular circumstance. And so, yeah, you just make decisions that feel right to you. So, those are our lists. I'm sure there's more. We're going to get messages from people going, what about this? So sorry if we've forgotten something. But again, all the gaps can be filled in the assembly of rebellious midwives. <laughs> That's my fail safe from now on. I really want to say here, trust your gut. Tap into your body more. What's your body saying? As well as what the evidence is saying. Yeah. All right. All right. So those are the reasons. So I've got some research here about elective cesarean sections because some clinicians will argue that the reason why the cesarean section rate is going up is because more women are requesting them so this is it's so multifactorial like are women requesting them more because their clinicians are guiding them in that direction or giving them fears that make them not want to have vaginal births or they've had previous cesarean sections and so now they think they need to have another one and so that's why they've requested another one so it's multifactorial but i've did a bit of research on this when I did my PhD. So my PhD is called Birthing Outside the System. And it was an analysis of what motivates women to choose either what we call a free birth, which is a home birth without a care provider, or they have a care provider at their birth, but they have risk factors that would otherwise have ruled them out of a publicly funded home birth program. So we called it Birthing Outside the System, and it's why women choose free birth or high-risk home birth. And the the main finding of my PhD was that women will basically always choose the option that feels best and safest for them. And for some women, free birth feels best and safest for a various list of reasons. And for some people, they will have a home birth with risk factors, with a private midwife for their reasons. They believe it's best and safest. So, so fundamentally, majority of women, the vast majority of women, will choose a birth option that feels the best and safest for them. And then in my discussion in my PhD, 
I talked about this idea of free birth uh, as choosing the best and safest. And then I made a comparison to women electing for cesarean section. And look, in my notes here, B, I've cut out some paragraphs from my thesis that I could just read verbatim. <laughs> that I don't know if it's going to be helpful. I'm actually, I'm actually super interested in it. And I think a lot of people are because I can imagine there would be a huge, there'd be a very similar comparison around why people choose elective cesarean and why people choose free birth. Because a, a lot of it is around autonomy, bodily autonomy, choice, and feeling powerful from that, right? And that's where you know, there is no right or wrong birth. It's whatever birth feels most powerful for you. I really want to hear it. Well, let's read it. And and I make comparisons about the social acceptability of each birth choice. And the difference mm-hmm. is, is that cesare- elective cesarean section is socially considered socially appropriate, even though it carries risk of danger. Whereas free birth and high risk home birth is considered not socially appropriate. And so women who choose elective cesareans aren't necessarily ostracized in the same way that women who choose free birth and high-risk home birth, even though the decision is rooted in the same motivation, and that is to have a better and safer birth. This, This happens internally around many different choices, which goes into a lot of your upbringing and your imprints around what is safe and what is not safe and what birth is meant to look like and what it's not, which I do want to say here that often we can choose things based on our previous experiences. And I really want to say you can heal from your trauma. And sometimes what drives you to heal and the time that you are driven to heal can be between pregnancies and during your next pregnancy. At times it can be years and years later, but I do want to say you can heal from birth trauma and that can change the decisions you make from what you thought you may have made next time around. So I do want to say you can heal. And a lot of what we've probably missed out on reasons why people choose cesareans can come down to their imprint on birth their upbringing and what they've what their belief system is around birth. And I have free antenatal classes for those that don't know about them. And so many people contact me and say, before I watched your classes, I would have had an electric cesarean or I was all for the epidural. And then with information, their imprint changes and their belief system changes. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it really confirms to them, yes, that's what I wanted. Other times it doesn't. And so I really want to add there that I think a reason people choose elective cesareans can be the social messages, the social acceptance, what their friends and family are doing or have done and what their belief system on birth actually is. Mm, totally. And it's it's so multi, like it's multi-layered. And this is what, what we know from research is that women well, well, should should I read it? I should. Everybody, have you got it? Everybody got a cup of tea. Woman, you spent how many thousands of hours on that thing, and how many people have read it? This is your time to shine. This is your PhD, babe. You read it word for word because you spent hours writing those words. Read it, shine. I'm here. I'm listening. Thanks, B. Thanks for giving me space. So settle down, everybody. Listening ears on. All right. <laughs> So this is a snippet, a snippet from my PhD, might get heavy, it's heavily referenced, I'm not going to tell you what the references are, but, you know, go on me, go with me on this journey. 
And the subtitle of this chapter was Choosing the Safest Birth Option. Here we go, everybody. Okay, pretend like you're listening to an audiobook now. How's my voice? Good for audiobooks? That that voice is, yeah. Use your best midwifery voice. Okay, best midwifery voice. All right, here we go. The majority of women prioritize the health and well-being of their baby and avoid dangers that might impact negatively on this. Therefore, the decision most women make during pregnancy and birth are underpinned by a desire to have a healthy baby while remaining healthy themselves. There's often a negative focus in the media from or greater society on women who make alternative choices. So I've done speech marks, alternative choices. Conversely, women who make other decisions such as choosing elective cesarean section without a medical indication are less criticised because cesarean sections are in line with biomedical constructs of risk and safety. Research shows that cesarean section performed without a medical intervention confers few health benefits on women and neonates. Indeed, it is associated with an increase in some health risks compared with vaginal birth. Despite this, Fenwick et al. 2010 found that some first-time mothers elected to have a cesarean section with no medical indication because they believed it was what was best the best, safest, and most responsible decision. A similar sentiment was expressed by the women in the Chadwick and Foster's 2014 study where they found that participants also feared the the process of vaginal birth and held the risk of perineal tearing, pelvic floor damage, and brain trauma to their infant uh, as a bigger problem than what they would experience by having an elective cesarean section. Such fears compelled women to opt for cesarean section as it was perceived as the safer option. And Chadwick and Foster explained that women choosing elective cesarean section constructed their choice as a form of risk management, which ironically, given the vast differences, is the same perception of women who choose to birth outside the system. Both groups of women are invested in reducing the perceived risks in birth. There's more, but as that's the message essentially is that we're all motivated by doing what feels best and safest. And so if, if your choices are motivated by that and you choose something else, then you will feel like you're doing something that's not the safest option. And that can be traumatic to think, gosh, there was a better option and I didn't take it. What kind of a mother am I? And so you know, that's the conundrum between the two options. My thesis is good if you want to read it, by the way. It's really good. All right. So that's what we want to say about elective cesarean right now. And we wanted to move on to now talk about how it's done. So if you haven't had a cesarean section or you want to know how it's done or you're considering having a cesarean section, we wanted to give you a breakdown of the procedure. Similar how we did when we did the induction episode. It's like, here's what you can expect. Super generalized though. Super generalized. You can get more, you can definitely get more detail probably in my antenatal classes, but again, they're more generalized. But if you want to do that, go for it. Yeah. B, would this be a good time to move to episode the next episode, 38? Wow. I think this is a good spot to look. We are, we have got <laughs> we knew this would happen. We've been talking about this for an hour. So 
This is part one of positive cesarean sections. And to continue the story next week in episode 38, we're going to kick off that discussion talking about the actual procedure of cesarean section. We want to chat you through the anesthetic options. So there's lots of different options of being awake, being asleep, all the different things. We're going to go through a list of how you can make your cesarean section better if you need to have one. There's lots you can do. You don't have to follow the usual procedure. There's lots you can add or take away or alter. So we're going to run through that. And then we're also going to talk about an up-and-coming technique of cesarean section called maternal-assisted cesarean section. And for that discussion, we're going to invite Dr. Natalie Elphinstone to share her experience of maternal-assisted cesarean section because she actually offers them, she does them. And so I've invited her on to actually talk us through what it is and how she does it. So you'll get to hear hear about that as well. So we'll see you in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion, which will be part two of Positive Caesarean Section. See you then. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right.